Hey everybody and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, then let me just welcome you and say that I am so genuinely glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife Lacey and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. So today I'm going to be sharing with you guys a teaching that I recently did at Mentoring Men for the Master, which is the the ministry that I'm with. And I hope that it's encouraging and that you encounter the Lord in some meaningful way in this time. And um, also this content, uh, I'll mention this, you'll hear me mention it in the message. It is uh, in some ways directly uh, connected to and, and relevant to the discussion we had in the previous podcast episode as well. But let's go ahead and get started, and I will hop back in at the end. Let's, um, let's pray. Dear Jesus, Lord, you are the perfect teacher. Lord, would you just teach us now? As we open your word, Lord, let us hear from you, please. God, it says that when the people heard you teach, they were astonished at the authority with which you spoke. And so, Lord, I pray that that's our experience here now, too. I pray that each and every one of us can walk away today saying that we heard from the Lord. You are the teacher, Lord. And so we just want to sit at your feet and listen to your teaching. And so we pray that you honor this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 8, and we're not going to be there very long, just very briefly. It's going to be kind of the launching pad for the rest of our discussion today. And while you're turning there, if you want to turn there, no, no pressure to do so, especially since we won't be there very long. But this is actually going to be very much, in some ways, a continuation of our uh, conversation from last time. You remember last time we talked about um, having a real vibrant, actual intimate relationship with the Lord Um, as opposed to reducing our relationship with him down to just trusting the means through which he speaks. And so um, not reducing our relationship with him down to to a formula, but actually keeping it relational and vibrant. And so today we're going to be talking about something very similar, just from a completely different, um, but I hope highly uh, relatable perspective. So in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, And I'll pause a little bit along the way. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So um, Jesus enters Capernaum. There's a centurion who is a, what's what's the centurion? Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Royal. That was a fantastic explanation. So yeah, this is an officer in the Roman army. So this is not a Jew, right? And so this guy comes to Jesus, appealing to him. He addresses him as Lord, and the issue is his servant is at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Resuming in verse 7, it says, And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Uh, So there's, you know, a lot of things we could talk about with this passage. Like I already kind of touched on the fact that this was uh, not someone of Hebrew descent. This would have been someone in the the Roman army, a Gentile. And, you know, Jesus' reference there at the end talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God, people coming from east and west and uh, eating at the same table as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just because someone is of Hebrew descent does not guarantee them a place in the kingdom, right? It's what we do with the person of Jesus Christ. And in response to him, in response to his sacrifice, do we... Do we believe? Um, and of course, this, this, this family is going to be what we call the church, right? But we could talk about that, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. There's just one simple thing I want to point out from this passage that will propel us into the rest of our discussion, and that is just kind of the simple, pure, childlike faith of the centurion. So he, the, the, he obviously is, is expressing faith by the very fact that he came to Jesus in the first place. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll come. I'll come and heal your servant. And he says, that's not even necessary. That's not even necessary. I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. He, he appeals to Jesus' authority. He says, you have the authority to do this. You don't, have to, you don't have to physically come. Just simple faith. And so we could really honestly conclude the lesson right here and have the shortest lesson in the history of lessons and say, Go and do likewise. You know? Go and do likewise. Have the same faith that the centurion did where it's just the simple, simple faith. Just trust in Jesus. All right, go home. But I want to I speak to an experience that every single person who's been a Christian for any length of time has had. And, you know, I, I would, you know, for the purpose of speaking with, like, dramatically, I could be like, anyone who's been a Christian for more than five seconds can relate to... No, I would say anyone who's been a Christian for at least a couple of years is going to be able to relate to what I'm about to say. Um, And so there's this simple faith that we see illustrated in the centurion, and we all acknowledge this is how we should relate with the Lord, that measure of trust. But as we live... As we walk with the Lord, as we progress through life, things do and don't happen that we really just don't understand. Things don't unfold in ways that we think they should. At times, there seems to be a disconnect between what I read and what I experience. And we don't understand. Um, We get discouraged. We get maybe even disillusioned. We might get angry. And what happens is the simple faith that we see modeled in the centurion can be jaded. Can you relate? If nothing else, I'm just, you know, sharing things that I've personally experienced. And you just, there's these times where you're like, I don't understand why blank did or did not happen X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to tell you what I'm not here to do. I'm not here today to talk to you about the way that we normally go with this conversation, which is to answer the question of why. We're not going to touch why. Job's friends did that. They were wrong. They were wrong. At the end of the book, they had to humble themselves, and the Lord is not pleased with them, and and they had to go and humble themselves and uh, go and offer a sacrifice, ask Job to pray for them. You remember this. God said they had not spoken of him rightly as his servant Job had. So if you're going to get into the whole thing with why, it's not in this setting. It's in a one-on-one setting where you listen for a long time 
ask a lot of questions, and most importantly, ask wisdom from God. I heard it said recently that if all you have is a hammer, then everything in the world looks like a nail, right? And so it's like we don't want to do that when we approach people who are in any given circumstance. Well, I knew somebody else who was in this, so it must be the exact same thing. No, let's, let's, be, let's be careful. So we're not getting into the why. Rather, we're going to talk about something today that I hope is actually a bit more constructive than that. And that is to answer this question. Not why did things happen a certain way or didn't things happen a certain way, but rather what should we do with the thoughts and emotions that flow from that? Because I'll go ahead and tell you, if we respond to this rightly, if we respond to this relationally with the Lord, then the discouragement, the confusion, the misunderstandings, all these sorts of things can actually serve as a great catalyst in our relationship with God. But in reality, there are a few ways that people commonly respond when spiritually there's discouragement or we don't understand why things did or did not happen or why God did or did not X, Y, or Z. Like, there's, there's a few things that, that will happen frequently. And one is that people just walk away, quit church. You know, this is kind of the... Um, this is one response where they just kind of step out of the community of faith, maybe become jaded. Um, that's a possibility, right? Uh, if they were, you know, genuinely born again, then they're probably going to, you know, eventually come back around. But um, as far as rejoining and, and, and getting back into the community of God, but but that's one response. But that's not where you guys are. And you know how I know? You're in this room. If you had responded to things that way, then you wouldn't physically be in this room right now. There is a second way, a more subtle way, and it's subtle because this way can actually still be celebrated by other Christians who are unaware of what's going on inside, and it's this. You settle down into the shell, into a husk of the Christian life, where you read your Bible faithfully. You memorize scripture. You pray daily. You share the gospel with people sometimes. You go to church faithfully. You give your money. And yet there's entire portions of your heart that are blocked off from the Lord. There's this external appearance of godliness and of intimacy with God. But there's no actual, um, actual like true heart-level intimacy with the Lord. You've blocked yourself off because the belief has come in. And this, I heard this, this idea stated recently, and I thought it was a really good observation, that sometimes unbelief feels safer than hope. As the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? And so sometimes like, I will choose unbelief and doubt over discouragement and pain. Because if I set my hope in things going a certain way, if I think things should happen this way, if I have unanswered questions about why they didn't go this way, then that was so painful, I am not going to do that again. I'm just going to settle down into this subpar Christian experience where I'm not actually interacting with God on any meaningful level in my heart in a relational sort of way, but all my Christian brothers and sisters are patting me on the back because how disciplined I am and how many scriptures I know. It's celebrated because they don't see it. I remember one time years ago, um, I was like... Uh, uh, I don't know, going to lead a small group or something like this. And somebody in the church I was attending, um, I don't know what was going on, but talking about like personal relationships with the Lord. And this person's commented on how mine was great. And as I look back, I'm like, how do you know that? How on earth does this person know that my walk with the Lord is great? I mean, this person came to this conclusion because probably because I could quote Bible verses. I'm like, 
I mean, I, you know, reflecting back, I hope they were right. You know, like I hope that you know, the stage of my walk with the Lord is great. But my point is like, they didn't know that. But the pat on the back. Same thing could happen at these tables. Right? And so sometimes we fall into this place where unbelief feels safer than hope, than actually opening our hearts up to God and cutting ourselves off from an intimate, uh, intimate relationship with him. But the issue is, besides the fact that that'll just make your soul shrivel up and, you know, and, and sometimes anger will bubble up to the surface, sometimes all these emotions will bubble up to the surface, and um, but you just kind of, you know, go along with this respectable Christian life that is devoid of power and intimacy. But one of the biggest issues is this. That's just not how we see the people in the Bible responding to this stuff. That's not actually what we see. And what I, what I, love, about, what I love about this book is how relatable it is. You read about people just like you, just like me, who feel the same emotions that we would feel, who have the same questions that we would have. So Psalm, um, book of Psalms, uh, flip to Psalm chapter 10 real quick. The book of Psalms, if you have ever felt an emotion, it's represented in Psalms somewhere. In some place, you know, and somewhere in this book. And so let me ask you this, what is Psalms? What is it? What is the book of Psalms? Okay, songs. And, and yeah, and to who? To the Lord. So many of these are prayers. And so that's very important because what we're about to see is not outside the context of prayer, but within the context of prayer. Psalm 10.1. And by the way, I told you two wrong responses as far as to just walk away or to settle for a subpar Christian life. We're about to see what the right response is. So Psalm 10.1, listen to this. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Sheesh, y'all. Can you imagine if that's how like, your table time started with somebody praying like that, going to a Bible study and somebody open up with that, you would pull that person aside and be like, oh, don't talk like that. Just trust the Lord. But this is scripture. The Holy Spirit chose to include this in the God-breathed scriptures. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Man, evidently, it's okay to come into prayer like this. Apparently, we see these people in the Psalms doing what I would suggest to you is the one constructive thing to do in response to these sorts of questions and emotions that come along that could lead to you becoming jaded in your walk with the Lord when you have questions. And what are they doing? They're crying out to God. They are neither ignoring and just walking away, right? Or I'm sorry, they're not, they're not fully embracing and just becoming jaded and like walking away or ignoring and just kind of pushing it down and just continue to do the whole Christian thing externally. We see people interacting in a very relational, real way with a real person because Jesus is a person, y'all. Listen, the Lord is the most high. He's one of a kind. He's unique, but he is a person and we interact with him personally. Again, last week we're talking about reducing that down to a formula, how that feels safer, how there's a measure of control, but that's not how relationships work. And so likewise today, I'm suggesting don't settle 
for a very just kind of ritualistic, structured, respectable, with quotes around it, uh, Christian life at the expense of actually grappling with the Lord and coming to him with your questions. Because that can serve as a major catalyst. And so what I'm suggesting is whenever you have these sorts of questions, whenever there is the temptation to be disillusioned, the, the discouragement, because y'all, like I said, anyone who's been a Christian longer for, than a year or two, you can think of times like this. You can think of times where it's just like things did not go the way that I think they should have, would have hoped. Things did not even go the way that perhaps you even thought was the Lord's desire for them or things didn't move at the speed or, you know, just all these sorts of things and there's a temptation to become disillusioned, upset, hurt and to withdraw from the Lord. Put walls up around your heart towards the Lord. What's interesting about these psalms Although they start this way, they don't end this way. Psalm 10 ends with, O Lord, this is 17 and 18 of Psalm 10. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. It starts with this, this confusion, and it ends with this hope. And again, the, the verses 17 and 18 make more sense if you read the entirety of Psalm 10, but... We're not going to read all that right now. You can read it. Psalm 13. We will read the entirety of this one. Listen to the progression through this psalm. Beginning in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13, one through six. It starts with sorrow, ends with singing. And that progression happened in the context of prayer. Do you see that? So what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting you be honest with God. I'm suggesting that if you are hurt, confused, and don't understand, that you be honest with him and that you bring it to him in prayer. The Bible, I mean, it's, it's almost just like we think that we can't pray a certain way, but God knows it already. It says that before a word is on our tongues, behold, O Lord, you know it all together, right? Psalm 139. And the question is this. What's more important, externally having it all together or having an actual relationship with God? Remember, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, one thing I want to um, talk about really quickly is there, there is a distinction between grumbling and complaining and doing what we're talking about right now. And if you think about it for a second, you can see what that distinction is. I mean, if you think about a child interacting with their parent, there is a big distinction between griping and then just pouring their heart out, even with all the raw emotions that would come with that, seeking to understand. You see what I mean? One is just like, I don't know, like one is very, very relational and is opening up your heart. The other one is just this kind of hard-hearted complaining. And, and I think it is very, very important to, to draw the distinction. The psalm says, pour out our heart before him in Psalm 62, verse 8. He's a refuge for us. 
So flipping to numbers, and again, you don't, I'm hopping all over the place today. You don't have to follow, but you know what? You can if you want. Numbers 11, we're just gonna, let's, let's read through this and we'll kind of hop around. Um, you know, there, there are many accounts in the wilderness wanderings of the people grumbling and then the Lord responding and disciplining against the grumbling. Uh, verses one through three, which we're not gonna read right now, uh, are an example of that. There's a fire that breaks out and uh, the place actually gets called burning. And so, well, you can read that if you want, but just for the sake of time, beginning of verse four, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And so do you think that's what they called themselves or is that like a title somebody else like attributed to them? Yeah, here comes the rabble. So now the rabble, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, which that's, that's stupid. What do you mean it cost nothing? They were slaves. It cost their entire freedom. <laughs> cost nothing. Okay. Okay. Sorry, backing up. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. <laughs> but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing, to, nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, after that, there's like three verses of like a parenthesis, like a parenthesis of sorts, where, um, where it, it says, now manna was like coriander seed, and it begins to explain what manna was, and so it's, that's, this is kind of fun, but it's, and it says what the people do with it. So what's happening? So what are these people simply saying? They were saying our life was better before God got involved, because who's the one who set them free from Egypt? It was the Lord. Things were better before God showed up and set us free and led us into the wilderness. That's what they're saying. That's complaining, that's griping, that's grumbling. But yet, look at what Moses does. Moses does the very thing that we're talking about today in the context of relationship with God. Resuming in verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses, <laughs> Moses said to the Lord, listen to this, y'all. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? He's talking to God. And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And listen to what Moses says in verse 15. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. He says, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, just take me out. If you're pleased with me, then just kill me. Like, if I, then grant my request. Y'all, this is Moses. That's raw. That's really, really, really raw. And we're like, what's going to happen next? <laughs> you know, it's like, Joshua better get ready. <laughs> and what does the Lord do? Does he drop the hammer? The Lord gently helps him. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. God sends help. Do you see that? 
And it wasn't because of Moses' good behavior. It was in spite of Moses, even, really, right? And so, I even think about Jonah. Jonah, at the end of his life, not the end of his life, at the end of, uh, he wishes it was the end of his life, at the end of uh, the book of Jonah, when he's outside Nineveh, he goes and he preaches arguably the, the lamest message ever. No hope. He just says, y'all are going to die, pretty much. And like, no, no hope, no call to repentance, nothing like that. And then everyone repents. Everyone is forced to fast. I think, even, I think the king even makes the animals fast. Okay. And so, like, <laughs> that, that's some repentance. Like, no one is going to eat anything. The king himself gets down from his throne and repents. And Jonah goes out and sits, and he stares at the city, waiting to see what's going to happen to it, right? Because he, he wanted... He, we find out in the fourth chapter the reason he fled is because, well, he throws it back in God's face. He's like, I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and that you would forgive them. And that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish when you told me to go here. Because I knew you would do this. I knew you would forgive these people. Jonah is quite in the wrong here. And God gently says, gently, y'all, gently, do you do well to be angry? I think, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting here recalling it. The first time, I think Jonah doesn't even respond to that question. He just kind of ignores it, right? And, uh, and isn't that how we are sometimes? Like, we know we're wrong. A good question is asked, and we don't have a good answer for the question. We're like, no, I've already made up my mind that I'm angry. But, um, but then he goes and he sits there. And then what, what does God send? A gourd, a plant of some kind. And what does the plant do? It shades him. And then what happens to the plant? Uh, God sends a worm to eat the plant. And then Jonah gets angry about the plant, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking here now in Jonah 4. Yeah, God, uh, God asks him, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah just ignores it. And, you know, he points this plant, and it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He just feels emotions to the max. He's ticked off. Now he's exceedingly glad. It says, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant that it withered. And then God sends this scorching heat. And so what is happening here? You know, Jonah goes on, it's better for me to die to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, uh, and he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And listen, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? There are the cattle again. <laughs> but do you hear the gentleness of this? Do you hear the gentleness of God? Do you see how God stooped down and used this object lesson to speak into Jonah's life? I don't think this is a harsh tone. I don't think there's anything in here to indicate that's a harsh tone, because when God says, do you do well to be angry, and Jonah walks away, it's not like God grabs him by the wrist, and like, don't you walk away from me. You know what I mean? There's none of that. Oh, guys, that we would know the character of God. That we would know what he's really like. And take off the lenses that we come to the scriptures with and read everything through these lenses of a way that he's not. Yeah. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Who by no means clear the guilty. Right? You remember his self-revelation to Moses. This is so gentle. When Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. 
There were no qualifications. It was just come. It wasn't leave your questions, leave your frustrations, leave your anger, leave all this stuff, leave your discouragement, leave your disillusionment, leave even your frustration in your relationship with me, and then come to me. No, it was come and I'll give you rest. Just come to me, all of you, all, all, everything you are, bring it to me in the context of my relationship with you. You guys, do you have any idea how much he loves you? He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, your relationship with God is the safest place on earth. As I shared, I think when I spoke last time in Dane Ortland's book, um, Gentle and Lowly, he says that the posture most natural to Jesus is not the pointed finger, but outstretched arms. What does he do with the stray sheep? He doesn't say, well, yeah, sheep are stupid and that thing shouldn't have strayed away. He got what he had coming. He's probably getting eaten right now. <laughs> Serves him right. Okay, 99, look at that one. You learned your lesson? You know? Is that what he does? No! That's the opposite of what he does. He takes it upon himself to seek that sheep out and he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it back. But we believe the lie. You can't be transparent with God. You can't be safe in the, 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 the presence of God, you cannot bring everything that you actually feel in there. And that actually serves to not strengthen your relationship with God, but isolate yourself from him, build walls around your heart, and it's, and, and, and it's nothing good. Listen to this. Um, Isaiah 40, 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Think of the tenderness of this picture. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with, with young. So then, so here we are. Well, what does it look like practically actually to do the thing that we're talking about here? And so now we're going to go pay a visit to Genesis 32. All right, I'm going to go over here. I mean, for those of you who looked at the, the memory work in advance, you're like, we're going to have to get there eventually. Like I can hear it in this conversation. And so we're talking about the really famous and, and really strange and interesting account of Jacob wrestling with God, right? Like when, when it comes to the Bible, like we'll hear stories enough that we just kind of like get used to them. This is strange. Like this is, this is different, you know? We're just going to pick up in verse 24 of Genesis 32. And before I do, Gen- uh, Jacob, you know, the, the deceiver, the heel grabber, um, has led a life of, I don't know, up until this point, deception and then being deceived. Like his life has reflected his name, really. Beginning in verse 24 of Genesis 32, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, 
for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Um, just as a side note, Peniel means the face of God. You can hear the L in there at the end, you know, like El, Elohim, you're, like Hebrew, El Shaddai, El meaning God. Um, and so, so it says that he's wrestling with a man, and by the end of this passage, you're like, that wasn't just a man. You know, this wasn't just some person that was like, hey, there's somebody alone, I'm going to get him. You know, like this wasn't, no, Jacob has an encounter with the Lord here. And Jacob realizes that by the end of this passage where he said, I have seen God face to face and yet I've been delivered. And you may say, well, then what about the whole thing where whoever he's wrestling with is like, well, let me go, let me go. Why is that necessary if this is the Lord? And I'll just point out, Jacob's hip was just dislocated with a touch. This is not a matter of Jacob overpowering, obviously. If you can just be like, boop, dislocate hip, you know, it's just like he could have gotten out very easily. Obviously. But what we see in Jacob is the exact same thing that we need to have in our relationship with God is instead of when things happen that we don't understand and settling, well, you know, we just need to, you know, kind of, you're just saying kind of like a lot of the right answers, having an actual real relational response in this tenacity of saying, God, I don't understand. I need to encounter you. I need you now. I don't need a nice, tidy theology that's going to explain away all these things and try to make it fit together. I need a legitimate encounter with the living God. I need to be changed. Whether it's my circumstance or my perspective, I need God to show up and do something. Jacob was changed. He walked in that evening as Jacob and he limped out as Israel complete change in identity. He was changed by an encounter with God. But do you see like how we can just settle down and not have the tenacity of Jacob, this thing that grips onto the Lord and says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And what's interesting is Jesus encourages us to pray this way. Luke 11, the friend at midnight. Remember? You, the, 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 the friend had, this one guy has some people come to visit him, show up late, he goes to his friend's house and says, I need some bread. The friend says, go away. We're all asleep. The kids are asleep. Please don't wake up the kids. Go away. The guy keeps banging on the door. And Jesus said, not because they're friends, but because of his impudence, his shameless persistence, the guy gets up and gives him the bread. And what's funny, what's funny is that that, is, that parable is given in the context of prayer. Luke 11, 5 through 13. You may say, well, Christian, is that how God thinks of us? Is he annoyed when we're banging on the door? And well, No, the point is, if it's true for this person who wouldn't get up because he loved his friend, how much more for your heavenly father who does love you? It's not like a comparison, but rather a contrast. Where it's like, if it's true for this, then how much more for the Lord? That same thing is applied in Luke 18 with the parable of the persistent widow. Right? Luke 18. In fact, I want to read um, Luke 18.1, and then I'll just, you know, summarize this. But uh, Luke 18.1 is important. Well, it's all important, but just, I really want to read this verbatim. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so what is the context of this parable? Prayer. The widow goes to the judge. It's an unrighteous judge, doesn't fear God, doesn't fear man. But the widow harasses this guy. And eventually the judge says, I don't fear God, I don't fear man, but just to get her to leave me alone, I will grant her justice. Jesus says in verse 7 and 8, 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Again, we get uncomfortable. Is God being compared to this indifferent, unloving, selfish, unrighteous judge? He's actually being contrasted to him. And it's the same logic. If it's true in this scenario, how much more? How much more for God who loves you, who welcomes you, who invites you into this sort of relationship with him where you can be honest and, and really, I guess, I, I, like I said, just kind of cling on and not let go. You look in the Bible and it's, there's, there are these times where, it's, again, Psalms isn't filled with, and David prayed a little prayer. It's filled with things like, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Cried to the Lord in their trouble. Um, psalm, this is, this is great. This is a psalm that I actually had forgotten about that I had written down um, in a journal back at the beginning of January. Psalm 138, 3. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. you will be changed. And this will be raw. And it will likely be uncomfortable and painful to open up parts of your heart that you have walled off because as an attempt at self-protection, you have thought that doubt is actually better than encountering God through these things. Does this make sense? I remember... Because you guys, being honest with God in prayer and then hearing him speak. Listen, there is something that happens in the human heart when you are vulnerable. And let's just talk about between human beings for now. Just like actually, like here and now. When you are vulnerable, the, the mask actually comes off. You are exposed and that's met with love. There is something that happens. Because you can't have a relationship with a mask. And yet we're designed to have relationship. And I just want to say to you, the same is true in our relationship with God. When we come with a facade, then we're asking him to interact with someone who doesn't even exist. Let God, let me come forward to you as someone that I'm actually not. Let me put on a mask in my relationship. But if you take off that mask and you encounter Jesus in your vulnerability, it will change you. I was going to a small group one time years ago. Just, just a couple of examples in my own life where I feel like God really spoke to me and it was so meaningful and it was just honest and, and just genuine. I was going to a small group. I don't remember what year this was. It's been a few years. Now, sitting in the parking lot, I wasn't the small group leader. I wasn't even the co-leader, but I was acting like I was the leader. Um, and, and that was a real problem, y'all. I would walk into the group and I would just like, I'd leave small groups feeling like, ugh. Like, why did I feel the need to, like, speak every time? Why did I grab the reins of the conversation? Why did I feel the need to try to show what I do or know or something like that? And I would just walk away being like, gosh, that's just uh, cringing, right? I saw this in myself. I'm sitting in the parking lot, and I'm just aware of this, and I'm just asking God for help as I'm about to go into this. And I just, I prayed a prayer that I had heard somebody else pray, um, but the Lord spoke to this. Well, the prayer was, I, I just, I'm just sitting in the car, I'm talking to the Lord about it, and then I say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what I said. And immediately he said, I have and I will. Amen. 
I have and I will, not a qualifier there. I have had mercy and I will have mercy. Amen. And in the vulnerability, I encountered Jesus. My brother-in-law asked me to speak at his church a few years ago. And um, I was torn about it. I was like, yeah, let me pray about it, which means like, just give me, like, just give me some time. Like, I don't know. And so, and, and Lacey and I were driving in the car and I'm talking to her about it and I'm, I'm feeling a lot of stress about the possibility of this because, and, and, and one of the things I said in that conversation was like, if I come to mentoring and it's awful, like if I come and I teach here and it's awful, those guys love me. <laughs> these, these people at this church, they don't, they don't know me. They might start throwing stuff, right? And so like, they don't know me. And, and I, I was like, I have a safety net at mentoring. And I felt like God in that moment spoke to my heart and said, I am your safety net. I'm, he, he wasn't just commissioning us to go or me to go and do this on my own and say, come back for your orders later. He says, no, we're going to go do this. Yeah. Jesus is the teacher. In these moments of vulnerability, actually acknowledging what we're feeling or thinking in the context, like it, it, within the relationship or the context of our relationship with God and hearing from him. So, flipping over to 2 Corinthians really quickly. But something I just really want you guys to know, and I've already talked about this, is it's so important how we view the Lord. We're going to 2 Corinthians 12. It's really important how we view the Lord. But you got to know that he loves you. you got to know that the offer to, you know, come and receive rest is an open offer. You've got to realize that what Jesus did on the cross for you was enough there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, I mean, all the thoughts will come in where it's just like, oh, God's upset with me, disappointed with me. He would expect me to have it more together right now. And then that actually leads us away from relying on the Spirit of God, trying to do things in our own power and perpetuates the issue. He loves you. Just talk to him. Second Corinthians 12, the thorn in the flesh passage and you guys know what the, the thorn in the flesh is? It's irrelevant to our discussion today. <laughs> Whatever it was, it's irrelevant. But there's something I want to see. Whatever it was, it was an, averse, uh, an unpleasant circumstance that Paul would have liked to have changed. And we know this. Again, it doesn't say that Paul prayed a little prayer. Listen to what it says. Three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this. This is strong language. Multiple times. This is crying out. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And then just the, what does what, what the beginning of verse 9 say? Just the first, very first part. Then he, oh, I'm sorry, but he said to me. And then of course we know it goes on to, uh, he, the Lord says, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul turns like the corner hard, like it's like a 180, right? Completely change, big um, change in perspective and everything. And he, um, but what, was, what turned the corner? But he said to me. But he said to me. In the context of this crying out to God, three times I pleaded with him. But he said to me. He encountered God. And so I'm just suggesting that we take an example from the Bible. And it's a little scary. It's a little scary because we're like, I would just say this, don't have a specific idea in mind of what it will look like for God to show up. Okay? 
you want to be careful because you could be setting yourself up for more discouragement if you have a really narrow view and the blinders are on and you actually miss what God is doing because you're so focused on this one thing that actually makes the issue worse. Just cry out to God and believe that he will respond. Believe what Jesus says when he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Just actually believe that he'll speak to you, that you'll encounter him. And that is a constructive way to respond to the discouragement, the confusion, and the hurt. And I mean, honestly, we don't come into our walk with Jesus as a blank slate. We come with all sorts of baggage, both hands full, you know, stuff under the arms. And, um, and as we go on, the Lord begins to heal that. He begins to put his finger on things that we thought were healed, but actually have just festered. And it hurts. But no physician causes any pain unless it's redemptive. No surgeon comes in there like Dr. Steve, and when you've done a heart surgery, have you ever been like, I want to write my name with a scalpel in this guy? Like, I was like, I'm not just like, yeah, signed Dr. Royal. It's like, no, no incision is pointless. It is all restorative. As Pastor J.D. Greer says, God never opens a scar unless he intends to mend it to completeness. And so as we go forward, is it going to hurt? Well, of course it's going to hurt because we're being healed. And just don't become jaded in that process. He loves you, and he knows what he's doing. And so we could talk more about this. Um, but I think the point has been made. And I just want to say, if you do this, it will lead to greater intimacy and closeness with God because you'll actually be interacting with him as a person and not just a list of activities. I hope that that was encouraging and um, was on some level meaningful uh, for you as you listened. There are just a couple of quick notes I'd like to tack on to the end of that that, frankly, I wish I had remembered when I was speaking. But just, just very, very brief, um, just in the context of everything you just heard, the context of that, that, that message and all of that, I just want to say that I'll quote my pastor. Um, and one thing that he says is that praise is always appropriate. And so even in this process of being really vulnerable, really open with the Lord um, and coming to him with all of our, all the thoughts we have, all the emotions we have, always remember to continue to give thanks. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then of course, I'll flip over to James really quickly as well says, uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So um, just just remember to continue to praise the Lord and, and to thank him, because um, a lot of times uh, that's kind of the first thing to go when we're in a place of discomfort or confusion might be a good idea just to have like a running list that you try to add to regularly. The second thing that I wanted to add on the end there is just the reality that you're going to be able to help people as you go through this process. Um, even with the examples of Psalms 10 and 13, which we looked at in that lesson, how many like innumerable people of God have been encouraged by those Psalms throughout the centuries since they were written? I mean, throughout the millennia since those were written, right? How many people have been encouraged by that, by those people sharing, you know, the, the, the Spirit of God leading them and uh, 
you know, seeing how they interacted with the Lord and, and prayed through all of that. And uh, a verse that I believe we talked about recently, I'll also mention here, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, if I can get there. 2 Corinthians 1, um, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. No, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. And so we see that as we're comforted by the Lord, you know, we, we are empowered by God to comfort others with the very same comfort that we experience. And so none of this is wasted, and and uh, and you're going to be able to comfort other people. And then I just want to say um, the, the last thing, the third point I would add is just to, like we saw with Jacob, just have that tenacity. It says that Jacob wrestled with God all night long, right? It wasn't just five minutes. It wasn't just 10 minutes. It was all night long. And so I just want to encourage you to keep coming back, to keep coming before the Lord, to continue to come before him. It is not to be like, oh, I was honest with God for you know one day and I didn't see any sort of major breakthrough or anything like that. So I want to give up. No, 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 don't do that. Um, just continue to do this. We see the model laid out in the Bible. And so I'm just going to end by going over to Psalm 27. Now read verses 13 and 14. It says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So I hope this has been encouraging for you guys. Um, uh, I just want to talk about the Bible is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that any and all gifts given are indeed tax deductible. So if you feel so led, you can give to this ministry and instructions on how to do so can be found in the footer of every episode description. So thank you so much to those of you who have, who have already given. And like I said, I hope this was encouraging. And until next time, God bless you guys.